chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6. We come this morning to a topic that I've heard from a few of you. You've never heard preached on before, or at least not a whole sermon on. And several of you have expressed your great anticipation for what I'm going to say about fasting this morning. I'm sure I will disappoint, but we will nonetheless seek to learn from the scriptures together in Matthew 6. You certainly might question my pastoral wisdom in preaching on the subject of fasting on a week of feasting. I get it. In this season of feasting and of giving thanks, in which on Thursday at least, probably other days this week, you will have a table spread of lots of wonderful, bountiful gifts. But as I said last week, I want to challenge you in this season of receiving and of feasting to think counterculturally about giving and fasting. Last week we considered God's glorious promise that to give is more blessed than to receive. Today we consider how fasting might, by God's design, be a tool in your spiritual tool belt to increase your love for your Lord, your commitment to Him, and your understanding of and knowledge of Him in your relationship with Christ. I want to lay before you that fasting actually should be a, a necessary element of our spiritual journey. And it is an incredibly joy-giving element in our walk with the Lord. You must know there are several things that have provoked this sermon this morning. The, the main thing has been that I myself need to grow in this area. It's been too long neglected in my own heart. And as I've had opportunity to pick my own topic for these few weeks in between sermon series, you know, it's, it's up to me. So I get to pick. So I was like, well, I want to learn about that. And I need to know that. And I need to grow in that. So I'm going to pick fasting. I've also been confronted many times in the past year with the idea of fasting, with uh, conversations revolving around fastings. I'm sure you have too if you follow the dietary and exercise world and intermittent fasting and all kinds of variations of that have hit that world uh, pretty heavily and it's become a huge craze for its health benefit. Uh, and it's just been really interesting to me that, that Christians, and I'm speaking broadly and generally of no one in particular, but it's interesting to me that, that Christians can get more excited about fasting for the health benefits than we can about the potential spiritual benefits of resisting food and taking time away, denying ourselves. Not only that, but I've been put into several conversations where the topic of fasting has come up in a spiritual conversation and, and thinking about fasting in relationship to our spiritual lives. And I've heard really strange ideas, really strange ideas. And I think if you've been in any kind of conversation about fasting or if you read anything, like if you just search uh, about fasting on the Internet and it, its impact on your Christian journey, you'll come across all kinds of weird things. All right. So just be aware of that. And so I wanted to dive into the Word and say, what does the Word say? How am I supposed to think about fasting? On top of that, in the last year, and I don't mean to limit it to that, I think it's gone beyond that in my own experience, but in the last year I've been in the, the trenches with some incredibly difficult situations, situations that are, are heart-wrenching and soul-crushing and life-stopping. And situations that are unending and ongoing and seem to have no end to them. Where the desperation is palpable and the answers and the way forward are few. And so in a few of those situations, I've been privileged to be a part of fasting and praying together with dear saints as they seek God's kindness. They seek his mercy in the hardest of things. So all that combined compels my own heart, and I trust yours as well, to grow in grace as I seek to understand what is the role of fasting in my journey. To fast, as you know, is to go without something for an extended time. It's to resist and, and keep yourself from something. It's usually related to food, obviously, in which you choose not to participate. You deny yourself from a normal meal or a normal set of meals or even a few days' worth of normal meals. So I wonder, have you ever fasted? And if the answer is no, I, I wonder why not? And, and you, don't, you don't have to answer me, obviously, but in your own head, answer that question. Why have you never done this before? And I'm guessing for most of you, if you haven't, the answer is because I really have never heard about it. I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. I, I don't know what, 
what role it has in my journey. If you have fasted before and you've pursued this practice, I, I want to also have you think, why? What compelled you to do that? What drove you to that expression of, of self-denial as you sought something from the Lord? Fasting has certainly fallen on hard times in the 21st century, especially in the Western church, particularly in the church in America. I think there's several reasons for fasting falling on such hard times in the American church. The first of those is that there is no direct command or mandate in the New Testament to fast. So nowhere in the New Testament does the, the Bible say that we are commanded to fast. There's also been, as I mentioned, a bunch of misuse of fasting in this religious journey. It's kind of become a, a religious ritual by which through the practice we move and demand the hand of God. And so through fasting, we get his attention. This is kind of the, the aberrant thinking here. And we make him do our bidding through fasting. Well, that's obviously not biblical. And I, I think Christians who are thoughtful and Christ-honoring realize it. And so rather than try to correct it, it's just easier to ignore it because it's not commanded anyways. And there's so many weird things connected. Why bother, right? That's maybe part of the thought of our collective psyche as American Christians. Well, I want to lay before you the question of the morning, and that is, should I fast? Notice the compulsion of the question. The question is not, can I fast? That's an obvious yes. There's a compulsory nature to the question. Is there any compelling reason which should drive you as a follower of Jesus to pursue denying yourself? from food or from some other meeting of your physical needs? Well, it's quite obvious that I think there is, because if the answer was no, I could pray and you'd be at early lunch, right? And you would not be fasting through lunch. I, I think there are. That's why I'm asking the question. It's an obvious yes. You're in Matthew 6. I want you to look at what I think is the most important text in the New Testament on the issue of fasting. This is in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The core theme of the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus exposing the, the hypocrisy and the Pharisaism of the day, pointing out that their righteousness is external but not internal. They're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside they have dead man's bones, Jesus says. And so he's helping us understand what true spirituality looks like in this Sermon on the Mount. And he starts out in chapter 6 by going to what it looks like to give in a, a truly Christ-honoring way that is from the heart and not to draw attention to yourself. So don't blow the trumpets before you like the Pharisees do to let everyone know that you're about to give a big gift to the Lord. Rather, give in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. Then he moves to prayer in chapter 6, and he says when you pray, don't pray with vain repetitions and in loud ways and on the public street corner so everyone can hear you pray and know how righteous and holy you are. Rather, pray in secret. Go to your closet. And when you pray, pray this way. Father, hallowed be your name and on down the list. And then we come in verse 16 to the area of fasting. And Jesus says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. As I've already mentioned, there's no mandate in the New Testament which says to you, you must fast, or how often you must fast, or even necessarily how you must fast. But Jesus here obviously assumes that you will fast. He does not say, if you choose to, at some point in your journey following me, decide to fast, make sure you do it in a way that's private and not public. No, he two times says in that text, when you fast. When you fast. He assumes this is going to be a practice of his followers in his absence. He instructs us how to do that, namely for it to be from the heart, not for it to be seen by others. So don't be like the, the Pharisees who don't wash their faces, actually probably put a little extra dirt on their faces to draw attention 
to them resisting and denying food. They actually fasted every Monday and Wednesday in their practice, and they did so as an outward sign of their supposed religious zeal. But as we know, they did not know God. They showed by their actions that they wanted to know God, but they did not know God. Jesus says, don't be like them when you fast. Rather, go about your normal practices. Comb your hair and brush your teeth. Take your shower before you go to work on the day you determine to fast. Don't make it obvious that you are pursuing denying yourself in this way. This is seen again in Mark 2 when a group of people come to Jesus, a crowd, the text says, come to Jesus and they say to him, listen, John's disciples are fasting and the Pharisees are, are fasting, but your disciples aren't fasting. What's the difference? What's going on here? They ask Jesus. You remember his answer? He compares the scene to that of a wedding. And he says, well, when the bridegroom is present, the guests of the feast do not fast. That would be weird. At, at a wedding, you celebrate. You rejoice that bride and groom are being brought together. So the guests would not fast at the wedding feast. And he says, but there's coming a day when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. He's obviously speaking of a day future to his ministry. Some think it's a, the three days that he was in the tomb, just for, between Calvary and the resurrection. There's many reasons I think that's not true. It goes beyond that. He's pointing ahead to when he's gone from us physically in the age of the church, in this age of grace. And so he says, when I'm gone, when I'm no longer physically present in the world, my followers will fast because I am gone. So should you fast? Well, Jesus expected that you would. So I think you should. A follow-up question I think that fits well with this is why should I fast? Why should I fast? I want to walk you through some of the key biblical examples of fasting. And by so doing, I want to lay some compelling uh, uh, reasons before you to fast, and not just reasons, but times of life in which you might consider fasting. So they're both reasons and opportunities, you might say. I've posed them as reasons, but they're both. Of why then should I fast? When you think of the practice of fasting, you intentionally deny yourself something that is ordinary and normal to regularly meet the needs of this course of life. The most obvious of that, as I mentioned, is food. Our physical man urges us toward food constantly. These strong internal desires, these, these hunger pangs, these physiological responses that we have no control over remind us that we are beings that need constant nourishment and sustenance outside of us. We are not self-sufficient. And so God's made us in our, our physical state to be needy people. And we meet that need without thinking about it. We subconsciously walk to the refrigerator when we're hungry and look for something good to eat, which there never is. But we go back anyways and find something to put in our mouth. When we fast, we're saying, by, and that was not a statement about my wife's cooking, by the way. I just realized that I'm in trouble later. I was just saying, we always go and we look and there's nothing in there. We, always, we all do that. All right, I'll, I'll stop digging out of that hole. When we fast, we deny those physical urges. We deny our physical man. We, we say no to the angst of our physiological makeup. And we say, no, there's, there's something more important here. Why do we do that? Well, the core of why we fast is to humble ourselves through self-denial. We're saying by fasting, Christian fasting is saying by its act that our temporal and physical needs and urges and concerns are not as important and are not as needful and not as necessary as our spiritual ones. We're intentionally turning the eyes of our soul away from the, the needs presented by our body to the needs presented by our heart and life and soul. Fasting keeps us from turning to physical enjoyment of food to medicate and comfort our afflicted souls. And, and that's not just people with eating disorders who do that. We all do that. We all find comfort in taking the initiative to eat something that we enjoy 
or at least that meets our needs, so that in some way we can cover over the hard things of life. You just think of of your last hard day, and you just delighted to be able to get home and have a meal with your family. And there's nothing wrong with that. I I I don't mean to demise that. But there's something about putting food in your mouth and enjoying a feast that that takes your mind off of the bigger matters that tend to crush your soul. And fasting, you're saying, I'm going to not medicate that way. I'm going to turn my attention to those things. I'm going to press in and press on. In fasting, we expose the urges and desires which have gained control. In our lives, we, by fasting, expose what urges we've given authority to, urges that we no longer say no to, urges that that dictate and dominate us, urges that become lords over us. In fasting, it becomes really clear how much we've given ourselves to those things in the past month or two or three or four. As we grow in physical hunger, hunger as we fast, instead of appeasing that hunger with food, our souls are urged on by that hunger to a greater hunger for God. With every stab of of pain in our belly, we are reminded of our need, which is far greater than to put food in our mouth. And we're compelled in fasting to, to exercise the humility we all should have all the time, denying ourselves and seeking more grace from God. I want to show you in these biblical examples that that's true. Okay? I've, I've just told you. Like, that's, the, that's my paragraph uh, explanation of the, the core of fasting. And I want to show you that in these biblical examples as we walk through it. As we do, I want you to notice that in every one of them, fasting is an expression of deep humility in the people of God. And in that humility, they're seeking more of the knowledge of God, and more of His gracious work in their lives. But more than that, you'll also see that fasting is never alone. Fasting is never by itself. Fasting is always married to prayer and worship. Fasting is the negative action which creates a vacuum in our lives. We take something out through fasting. And while we fast, we don't just fast and leave something out, because I guarantee you something else will come in. But in taking something out, the negative removal, we add a positive element. And that positive element in Scripture is always prayer and and worship as we fast. In other words, if we are just fasting without praying and worshiping, we're missing the core point of fasting. I also want you to notice as we walk through these examples that fasting is a desperate measure for desperate times. Every one of these situations we're going to talk about are desperate, desperate times. That's when God's people should deny themselves meaningful, normal practices to meet their own needs and seek God in prayer and in worship. Fasting is an expression of those who are poor in spirit. Fasting is an expression of those who mourn. Fasting is an expression of those who are meek. Fasting is an expression of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Fasting is a confession of humble pursuit of God. So why should you fast? Consider these examples from Scripture. We see, first of all, in Leviticus 16, verses 29 to 31, that we should fast because of the seriousness of sin. We should fast because of the seriousness of sin. This is the only fast commanded in all of Old and New Testaments. There's other instances we'll see in Ezra where he calls for a fast with the people around him. But this is the only fast commanded by God in his law or in his command to the church. This is it. Leviticus 16, 29-31. It was on the Day of Atonement. They were to give themselves to considering their sinfulness on this Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, verse 29 says this, And it shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. That's the ESV translation. The Net Bible says humble yourselves. The NASB says humble your souls. The NIV says, deny yourselves. It's the word for fasting. You shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. 
You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourself. Same word, deny yourself, fast. It is a statute forever. So on this one day a year, the people of God were to humble themselves as they fasted as an expression of the seriousness of their own sinfulness. The high priest would take two goats. One would become a sacrifice for their sin offering. He would take the blood of that goat, and on on that one day per year, he would enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle or the temple, and he would sprinkle the blood of that goat on the mercy seat. As in obedience to God, as an expression of the sacrifice of, of a substitute's blood for the forgiveness of the sins of God's people. It had to be done yearly because the blood of bulls and goats do not provide eternal remission of sins. He also would bring another goat, which was the scapegoat, upon which he would lay his hand and confess the sins of the people and then lead it into the wilderness and let it wander off into oblivion as a picture of the sins of God's people being carried away from the camp. It's a serious, sober day for the people of God. And God says on that day, that's not a day for normal eating. That's not a day for normal things. That one day a year, people of God, you need to set that aside and deny yourself normal things so that you know the seriousness of sin and the joy of forgiveness. In Christ, we obviously are not under this command to fast the law being fulfilled in Jesus. He being the great sacrificial lamb by whose blood our sins are eternally forgiven. He standing in the true uh, holy of holies before the mercy seat of our Father, declaring our name as righteous because we're in Him, clothed in His righteousness. We don't have to fast so as to secure the forgiveness of our sins, but rather, ought we not, through physical expression, when we're especially burdened by the reality of our own sinfulness, or the sinfulness of others, or the sinfulness of our world, in which we we think it a right for mothers who should protect their babies the most to, to take the life of the baby in their own womb. And we make light of this in our culture. And we say it's a right, and we defend it, and we demand it, and we fight over it. That kind of sin in our culture should compel us once in a while and say, you know what, I'm skipping lunch. Because sin is serious, and we need help. We also should fast because of the desperation for mercy. Because of the of desperation for mercy. We see that in David in 2 Samuel 12. This is after his sin with Bathsheba. The child from their union has been born. Nathan confronts him, tells him, you are the man, and your son will die. His son is deathly ill. David knows the promise of the prophet from the mind of the Lord. But when he hears that his son is deathly ill, the text says he laid in the room on the floor and fasted for seven days. His servants watched him and wondered how they could help him. They didn't want to go talk to him because they saw his anguish. They didn't know what to do. And then when the child died, they especially didn't know what to do. If he was that wrecked when his son was deathly ill, what will happen when his son has died? And so they finally, he sees them talking and, and says, is he dead? And finds out that he is. And so what does he do? You know, he rises up, cleans himself off, and goes to the temple of God and worships there. And then he comes to the table and he asks for a meal. His servants are perplexed. What are you doing, David? Why did you act this way? Why did you mourn and grieve while he was alive and then feast when he was dead? David says this in 2 Samuel 12, 22-23, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him that he will not return to me. You see, David was desperate for mercy. He didn't deserve for God to be kind to him, but he was desperate. And so he, in his wrecked, broken condition, denied himself food. In fact, I think probably couldn't even eat if he wanted to. And lay in anguish on the floor and pled with God to show him 
mercy. His tears were the food he needed for seven days as he cried to the Lord. There's going to be times for us as Christians and followers of Jesus where the agony of God's providence is so great that we can't even eat. We can't even think about putting food to our lips. Circumstances at times will be so heavy that we're simply going to lay on the floor in agonizing grief and weep before our God. This account is also so instructive by how David responds when his son dies. Notice that he didn't get up from the floor, raise his fist at God and say, I fasted for seven days. Why didn't you answer my prayer? No, he, by faith, received God's answer. Though he had fasted, he knew this was not a tool to demand the work of God in his life. And he turned and he stood up and he worshipped God. You see, fasting for him was a focused way to express his great need for God's mercy. And then he left the answer in his all-wise, all-sovereign God's hands. We should fast because we're desperate for mercy. We should trust God with the answer. We also should fast because of insurmountable threat. There's an insurmountable threat in several texts in Scripture, and that produces a fast in God's people. One of the clearest of those is in Second Chronicles 20 when Jehoshaphat is king and enemies from the south are coming up against Jehoshaphat. And He's told about it, and he is afraid. It's, it's an insurmountable threat. There's no way they're going to win, and he knows it. And so what does he do? He, he declares to the people that they need to fast and pray. He sets his face to seek the Lord, the text says. And then he calls for a national fast. He says to, to everyone under his authority as king, all of you fast and seek the Lord with me. You see this insurmountable threat that they couldn't get over themselves, forced them to fasting and prayer. In prayer, he will say this in verse 12 of that chapter, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Now that's what he said with his mouth, but he was saying it already by his posture, by his activity. He was fasting and praying. He was seeking the face of the Lord. These were not just words. This was the depths of his being as expressed through fasting. This is the essence of this kind of, of fasting and praying in an insurmountable, unconquerable, unchangeable, humanly speaking, situation. We deny ourselves food. We go hungry. And we confess to the Lord that there's a greater need that's captured my attention. One that's consumed my gaze. And I need your mercy. We see this again in Ezra when he's leading the people from exile in Persia to go back to Jerusalem. And before he leaves and enters through the very dangerous tra uh, traveling course back to Israel, he humbles himself and calls for a fast that they might have safety from the Lord because he didn't want to ask the king for a uh, group of soldiers to guarantee their safety on the way. And so they fast and seek gracious intervention from their omnipotent God. It's also seen in Nehemiah when He's told that the, the walls of, Jer of Jerusalem are still broken down and, and in disrepair, and he weeps and mourns. He says, as soon as I heard those words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, in his prayer, he's going to offer himself to the Lord as maybe a potential solution to the problem. He's going to offer himself to the Lord to go talk to the king that he might lead a group back to fix the walls. But before he ever does anything, or offers himself to do it, he pleads with God for mercy. It's an insurmountable hurdle for him. It's the same pattern we see in the book of Esther. When the Jews are in exile under the Persian king, and Mordecai, her uncle, discovers the plot of Haman to kill all the Jews in the land. And by God's providence, Esther, the niece of Mordecai, has been married to the king of Persia. And so he says to her, Esther, for such a time as this, you've been put in this position, go talk to the king. And she's like, you know that I might die, right? If I do that, I can't go unless I'm asked to come. 
It's against the law to approach the king, even if you're his wife. And so she says to him, listen, you get everybody in Susa, the capital, every Jew you know, and you tell them to fast for three days and three nights. And me and my girls will do the same. And on the third day, I will go and talk to him. You see, it was an insurmountable problem. There was no reason that her husband should have listened to her, given her the time of day. But God opened his heart through the fasting and praying of his people. We also should fast and pray because of a serious illness. This is what David models for us in Psalm 35. In contrast to what his friends did to him, they've betrayed him. He says, still when they were sick, I wore sackcloth and I afflicted myself and I fasted and I prayed for my friend's recovery. There's some pretty serious reports of serious illness in our body. That, that ought maybe provoke the body of Christ individually and, and maybe even corporately at some point. To say, you know what, this is so important. So much needing of God's mercy that we're going to deny ourselves and seek the Lord. We also should fast because of God's sure promises. This is in Daniel 9 and verse 3. The prophet put together the fact that the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah were about to come to an end. Exile in Babylon were, was almost done. And because God had promised that and because Daniel knew God would keep his word, he sat back and did nothing. Waited and bided his time and counted on his calendar and counted down the days to see when God would finally provide and how he would do so. No, he fasted and prayed. Because God had said he would do it. And because in Daniel's mind it looked pretty impossible at the moment. He got on his knees and he skipped his lunch and he pleaded with God to keep his word. Is there anything in your life where you know God has promised you to be at work in a certain way? Over the last five years or so, we have been convinced of God's promise to use His gospel to bring lost souls to saving faith and to add them to the church. And we have pleaded with God to do that very thing because that's what God says He'll do, right? That His gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to everyone who believes. And so we're convinced that, that God's method of evangelism in this world is the church. The proof of the gospel is the church. The propagation of the gospel is the church. We're convinced that God's going to bring more to the church by His grace as the gospel is proclaimed by His people. And we have yet to see a, a great increase of souls won from sin. And we've been faithful to proclaim the word. And we can do better and we can do more for sure. But every week I hear stories of Christians in our body telling unbelievers the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Beloved, it's time for us to claim the promise of God that your gospel is powerful, God. Show that power by saving souls as you have our very own. And maybe we need to fast because we're so burdened with the reality of lost souls who go about their business at this present hour. Unaware that they're going headlong to an eternity apart from the glory of God. Maybe we should be compelled to deny ourselves breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So we can spend that time on our face before our holy, omnipotent, all-gracious God and ask Him to keep His Word. We also should fast because of intense longing for redemption's completion. That's a mouthful, but that's exactly what we see in Anna, the prophetess in Luke 2. You remember her. She had given her life to being in the temple complex, fasting and praying and teaching. The text says in Luke 2, verse 37, that she was worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That gives us a little window 
into Anna's soul. Why was she there? Because she wanted the fullness of the redemption of Israel. And so she was burdened by that, and she was praying and pleading with God to do that, and she was fasting as an expression of her earnest desire. We're in a different era of God's work and God's people. But just like God brought the Messiah to Anna and showed her the proof that he was going to keep his word, we on the other side of the cross have the same promise. He's going to return again. And we should pray and plead with God to send his son soon. Just as John says at the end of Revelation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And we should do that at times when we don't do anything else. When we skip our lunch so we can say to God, Lord, I'm tired of this world. Lord, I've had enough. I can't do this anymore. The anguish is too great. The trial too severe for this weary soul. Lord, correct my perspective and fill me with your spirit. And Lord Jesus, come soon and make all things right and fulfill your promise of redemption as you've said in Romans 8. And keep us faithful until you come. We also should fast because of Christ's absence. This is a great segue from the last one, but this is how Jesus talked in Mark 2. When the crowd asked, why aren't your disciples fasting? He says, because I'm here. But there's going to be a day when I'm gone, and then they're going to fast. Well, beloved, we're in that day. That's us. Christ's physical presence is not here with us. His spirit is. In Revelation, he's pictured as spiritually standing in the midst of his churches, but he's not physically present among us. And as we lament his absence, we grow in our love for our Lord, right? Isn't that what Peter said? That though we haven't seen him, yet we love him. And the idea of that text is that it continues to grow as you grow in faith. As you mature in your knowledge of God, you love Christ more, though you've never seen him. And so occasionally, we as those who love God should humble ourselves through fasting and prayer and plead with God to come back for His will to be done and for His kingdom to come. You know, Revelation ends in a glorious way. It tells us that all of this is going to give way, all of the hardship and all of the pain and all of the anguish and, and all of the fasting of God's people is going to give way to feasting and celebration and joy. Where there will be no more sorrow and no more pain and no more tears and no more grief. They're all, they will all be vanquished in Christ. And God will dwell with men and men with God in the new heavens and the new earth and in the new Jerusalem. And it will be a place of, of great feasting in every way. The psalmist in Psalm 16 says it's a, a place for pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. Now that's a phrase you cannot plumb the depths of. What does that mean? Let your sanctified imagination run wild. It is, it is every sanctified pleasure you can imagine in a, a newly created, sin-free world beyond our ability to comprehend in full. Eternity will be filled with feasting, and until we get there, our existence should be dotted by fasting. There should be moments of this intense homesickness for our coming country and our coming king. We also should fast because of pastoral duty. Pastoral duty, and I don't just mean that the leaders of the church should do this, though I specifically and namely mean that. I also mean any area of life where God has laid upon you a shepherding responsibility as parents, as grandparents, as a friend to another believer whom you care deeply about. Pastoral duty should call you at times to deny yourself and humble yourself and seek God. We see this in Acts 13 and again in Acts 14. Acts 13, Saul and the other elders in the city of Damascus are, are excuse me, in the city of Tarsus are seeking. I'm going to get it wrong. It is Damascus. I get those always confused. And I'm still wrong. It's Antioch. Man, I'll get it right. Okay, it's Saul and his guys at Antioch. I obviously don't have the text in front of me. Going off of my own mind here. They're, they're 
compressed by the reality of needing to take the gospel around the world. They know that that's the impetus and the call of God upon their soul, and they don't know necessarily what to do next, and so they fast and pray. They worship and deny themselves food as they seek the face and direction of God. And you know the text so clearly says that God, while they were worshiping and fasting, said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. They fasted and prayed some more. They laid their hands on Saul and Barnabas and they sent them to do what God called them to do. On their return after the first missionary journey at the end of chapter 14, they are coming through the towns again and after they had appointed elders for them in every church, listen, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. It's the practice of the New Testament church, particularly of the New Testament church's leadership at key and pivotal moments, pastorally sensitive, needing wisdom to shepherd the church well, to deny themselves and to seek the Lord. This is what we see modeled in Scripture. So why should you fast? Because sin is serious. Because you have a desperate need for mercy. Because you're going to face insurmountable threats in your life or in the life of the church because of serious illness in you or one you love, because of God's promised word that you don't yet see fulfilled, because of your intense longing for redemption to be completed, because Christ is absent, and because of the pastoral duty and weight of ministry decisions that you face. All of those realities confront us with desperation, Desperation that should call us to deny ourselves and seek the Lord. We'll feel that desperation at sometimes more than others. A season of fasting, you must know, is a, a unique way for us to express the desperation of our hearts. It ought not be the bread and butter of our lives. It ought be the exclamation point of our faith in which we intend to declare to God, I need you. You might now ask, how should I fast? Should you fast? Yes. Why should you fast? Essentially because you need to humble yourself in desperation. Now let me give you quickly four practical ways to start fasting. I'm going to give these to you in rapid succession. You can chew on them. It's part of your homework as you chew on your food. Chew on these truths. So maybe I've convinced you to, to fast at some point in your Christian journey but you wonder, how do I do this? Well, here's my attempt to help you. First, be sincere, not showy. Be sincere, not showy. Whatever you do, be sincere and not showy. This is coming, obviously, from our Lord's instruction in Matthew 6. Fasting is not to be leveraged as an expression of exceptional spirituality so as to impress others. If it is that, don't ever do it. You bring judgment upon your head if that's why you fast. Don't bother. Leave it alone. Fasting is to be a sincere expression of the hunger of your soul for God. By the, the practice of fasting, you say, I don't need this, but I need more of God. So be sincere, not showy. Now you must just know practically that doesn't mean that no one can know that you're fasting. I've wrestled with that throughout my experience. Like, so if I'm fasting, then no one can know, right? Because as soon as someone knows the blessing's gone, right? Matthew 6, someone found out, the reward's out. Now I'm rewarded by that person and not by God. No, that's not how this works. You have to let somebody know you're fasting. People you normally have meals with, your family, your friends, your roommate, whatever, they're going to see that you're not eating. So in sincerity, be ready to explain to them why you're doing this. And as best you can, put to death the pride, the spiritual pride that rises in your heart that you're a better Christian than they are because you're not eating than they are. And while they're eating and you aren't, go seek the Lord. Be sincere and not showy. Be sporadic and not robotic. This is the next one. Be sporadic, not robotic. We saw this in the biblical examples that fasting is a desperate measure for desperate times. It's right and good to normally enjoy all of God's good gifts in this life. Go eat your lunch today with thankful joy. 
Don't take a bite thinking, I shouldn't be doing this. I should be fasting and praying. No, enjoy your lunch as unto the Lord. As he said to Timothy, God has given us all things richly to enjoy. So enjoy it. And enjoy it as a gift from your heavenly Father. It's good and right to take care of your physical body as a good steward. It's good and right to eat normal meals. That should be your normal pattern. Do so well. Be thoughtful about what you eat. Be a good steward. You don't need a cathedral to the, to, to the Holy Ghost. You need a temple for the Holy Ghost. So be careful what you eat. Some of you will get that later. It's also right and good to occasionally deny yourself some of these normal patterns for the sake of giving focused time and effort to the Lord. And this is especially needful when pressures weigh down upon your soul and press you to the dust of the earth. And as Spurgeon said, when the hand of providence puts you in the dust, worship there. And part of how you worship there is by fasting and praying. And that's going to be sporadic, not robotic. Fasting should pop up in your life as needs pop up in your life. It's not to be a set day on your calendar. Be creative, not coercive. Be creative, not coercive. There's not a fasting playbook to follow here. There's not 10 rules which you need to always keep every time you fast. There are not fasting levers and buttons, ones that you pull and some that you push at just the right times and in just the right way so as to make God bless you and work in your life. That's not what fasting is. This is not our mechanism to move the hand of God in a way that he can't deny us. Frankly, I think that's how many people think about and talk about fasting. It's this special spiritual discipline that unlocks special spiritual blessing that moves God's hand to act in ways that he just couldn't until we fasted. Friend, that's coercive. That's unbiblical. God never operates that way. Never. God's blessings are all of his grace. Never rewards for our own righteousness or our, or, or our own effort. He is a God of all grace. So don't ever think you're putting God in debt by anything you do or say. Don't be coercive, but rather be creative. Try to fast for one meal. Try to fast for one day. Maybe after that, try for a few days. Or maybe because of health reasons, you can't go off of your diet, off of nutrition. Find other things in your life that, that you find yourself drawn to, that you have urges in your life to continually go to. And cut those things off in your life. Deny yourself your phone or social media or TV or your computer. Whatever it is, the, the key here is that your denial and, and fasting from that will be married to an intentional pursuit of the Lord and worship and prayer. Don't go home and deny yourself watching football this afternoon so you can read a good fiction book. You've missed the point. If you're not going to watch football because you're trying to fast unto the Lord, then get on your knees and seek the Lord. Open your Bible and read His Word. Through the years, I found it especially helpful in this idea of being creative. And when I have pursued fasting is to get out of the house and go somewhere in God's creation. There's something about being outside, and I have to be moving, because if I'm sitting there, I'm probably not going to be, I'm going to be distracted. I'm going to be thinking about all the things I should be doing. So in moving, I give myself the myth that I'm accomplishing something. And while I'm moving, I'm praying, and I'm pleading with the Lord, and I'm begging Him and crying out to Him. And I have found in, in the hardest moments of pastoral ministry, the, the moments where if, if God doesn't intervene, and, and you need to know this happens for your elders, if God doesn't intervene, then we would be crushed and there would be us no more. We, we would just bail and be done. That's just the reality. And, and you have that in your own experience. But I've had that in pastoral ministry where if God doesn't help me, there's no way forward. And I have found it best to say no to everything else, to go get alone with God and my Bible, to pray and walk, to sit and read, to weep before God in his creation. Be creative, not coercive. Lastly, be discerning, not delusional. Fasting, as I've mentioned, has a long history of delusional thinking within religion. Many have connected fasting to the receiving of visions and 
hearing the Lord speak to them in supernatural ways. And frankly, a lot of that's just because they haven't had food for a long time. Many have also linked fasting to a heightened spiritual experience. Many take a, a dualistic approach to the makeup of man, that we're physical and material and then on this side, and then we're, we're spiritual and godly on this side. And we need to shed the physical and material as much as we can in this life so as to enhance and increase the spiritual and godly on this side. And so by fasting, the, the thought is that we, we deny this and then we increase here. Well, that, that's not how Scripture presents fasting. You're, you're not a dualistic being. You're a, a whole. You're one. You're united, body, soul, and mind. And so you don't punish yourself in the physical to increase and elevate yourself in the spiritual. Frankly, that's a bunch of new agey gobbledygook, and it needs to be rejected. You don't have to get weird about practicing fasting. Rather, you need to be discerning, running to Scripture, and applying scriptural principles to your practice of fasting, seeking the face of the Lord like Jehoshaphat did in 2 Chronicles 20, and resist the urge to deceive yourself into thinking that by your fasting, you're making yourself more commendable to God, by which now, because you fasted for three days, he is in my debt and he must meet my need. Resist that urge. Don't get delusional. Be discerning. Beloved, may we seek the Lord while he may be found. And may we call upon him while he is near. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are good and worthy of our praise. We trust you with the hardest of things in our lives. You are wise and sovereign and righteous. We lay before you all of our cares and concerns, anxieties and sorrows, and we beg of you to prove yourself sufficient with all of those things. Would you show yourself to be near to the brokenhearted? Or would you prove yourself to be good to those who taste and see? Father, would you help us to think rightly about this practice of fasting in our lives? Would you help us to take what we've learned and apply it well to our own practice so that we increase in our knowledge of you and our love for you and our joy in you? Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.